Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. reproducing some of the symposia and plenary sessions from the Society for Range Management's 2020 annual meeting and training in Denver for the podcast. These were recorded live on February 17 through 20. I selected sessions in consultation with the meeting and technical program chairs that we believed would be widely applicable and that would not depend heavily on the listener being able to see the accompanying slideshow with photographs and charts. With the speaker's permissions, we will provide contact information for each speaker so that you can request additional information from them directly if you are especially interested in their topic. This episode is from the symposium titled Stakeholder Engagement to Improve Federal Rangeland Wildfire Mitigation and Response. Rangeland wildfires have grown in size, frequency, and length of season due to factors that include increasing human use of rangelands, vegetation state change, like cheatgrass invasion, drought, and climate change. For example, the largest wildfires ever recorded in all four Great Basin states have been rangeland fires occurring since 2000. In response, land managers and researchers have proposed solutions such as novel grazing systems, preemptive restoration, fuel break provision, and more. Because Western United States rangelands are largely managed by the federal government for multiple uses, and because wildfires frequently cross jurisdictional boundaries, implementing successful strategies to reduce wildfire risk and impact or improve post-wildfire recovery is likely to require involvement by multiple actors beyond the federal range management agencies. The symposium presents results of new research looking at options for engagement between land management agencies and multiple stakeholders to improve federal wildfire mitigation and response. Katie Wolstein presents results from three BLM field offices showing how formal and informal arrangements and processes affect learning, interpretation, and subsequent implementation of management designed to reduce wildfire risk in Idaho. So I'm Katie Wilstein. I work for the policy analysis group uh, at the University of Idaho, and I'm also a PhD candidate in the Department of Natural Resources and Society. And so I'm going to talk about, as Mark described, uh, the before fire event, uh, particularly focused on uh, the resource that ranchers offer um, across rangeland landscapes. So public rangeland management presents a tension between um, top-down policies that are meant to protect resources, um, manage wildfire risk, um, but there's also a tension with the need for local-level approaches that can be adapted to place-specific challenges. And so an example of this is the Bureau of Land Management's recent efforts um, in what they've been calling outcome-based grazing or outcome-based management uh, around the West, but in particular uh, in the state of Idaho today. 
So today I'll talk about using outcome-based management and outcome-based grazing uh, to manage wildfire risk and the results from case studies of three BLM field offices in the state of Idaho. And so I'll be focusing on how institutional conditions uh, together, they're interactive and then create context for whether, um, or that context affects the kind of efficacy of implementing outcome-based approaches to manage wildfire risk. So just some background, uh, many of you might know this, but a lot of Western ranches uh, rely on a network of both uh, private and public lands for their annual forage needs. Uh, and so the BLM is statutorily uh, mandated to manage multiple uses on public rangelands. And so one way they deal with this is to issue grazing permits to these permittees. And so these permits uh, contain terms and conditions that specify when and how intensively a permittee may graze livestock. And generally, such permits may be renewed every 10 years uh, if the BLM determines that the permittee followed their terms and conditions. But permitting was meant to address resource degradation, especially in the early 20th century. We've all heard tragedy of the commons. Um, but one of the results of kind of that top-down approach is that there's difficulty um, in being flexible or responsive to unexpected um, uh, annual variability, so things like drought or particularly productive years, and also unexpected conditions like wildfire. And, and so the idea is if it's an unusual condition, it wasn't written in the grazing permit to begin with, and so there's little ability to respond to these emergent conditions on part of the BLM, even though the rancher very much recognizes that there, there's a need and there's um, good management practices to be done by being responsive. <laughs> And so if a change is desired on that permit, um, typically some sort of NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, which I'm certain many of you are familiar with, something under that needs to be done to change that permit. The problem with that is, as you, many of you know, that's a really long process, and so it's almost impossible to get grazing on the ground um, that season or in response to some real-time events. And so to deal with that, um, in the last two or three years, the Bureau of Land Management has been interested um, in what they've termed outcome-based grazing or um, more generally called outcome-based land management in the state of Idaho. Um, and the goals of this are to decrease the response time to real-time uh, resource conditions, as I described, and then also work collaboratively with the multitude of uh, rangeland stakeholders to achieve desired, uh, they're calling it ecological, social, and economic conditions, the three-legged stool. Uh, and so this has taken place uh, in kind of in two streams. The first of these is uh, the outcome-based grazing authorizations. They are being piloted in six states across the West. Um, and the idea is that an OBGA um, contains mutually agreed upon goals for an allotment. Um, and so perhaps the BLM and a permittee will identify the goal for reduced fire risk, uh, reduced invasive annuals, improved wildlife habitat, and improved perennial abundance on an allotment. Um, and so perhaps the uh, permit therefore needs to authorize early spring grazing before perennial emergence to achieve that desired outcome. Another uh, kind of stream of this outcome-based management has been um, what, what's been generally dubbed outcome-based grazing or flexibility in grazing management. The guidance for this came out in a fall 2018 instruction memorandum uh, by the BLM. And it just suggests that uh, permit administrators in the BLM build a little more flexibility into permits uh, when they renew those permits, so every 10 years, <laughs> presumably. Um, and so that responding in the future to real-time conditions has already been kind of planned for, so you don't have that delay in doing the NEPA analysis and then waiting for those results 
uh, to come out. And so there are different ways of thinking about policy implementation. For this study, we focus on formal and informal institutions and how they interact and reinforce each other, and as I said earlier, create context um, under which these things actually happen. Uh, so managers make decisions in situations that are structured by institutions, and these institutions guide, inform, uh, and direct people's interactions and then their subsequent actions. And so we divide these institutions into two categories, formal and informal institutions. So the formal ones we're all pretty familiar with, these are the things that are actually written down and legally enforceable. And so that could be something like FLIPMA or the grazing regulations. Informal ones are a little less tangible. There are things like culture and norms and practices, things that are interpreted by individuals. Uh, and so the way informal institutions work is they actually complement or fill in the gaps where perhaps formal institutions are silent or it might be legally gray or ambiguous. So an example uh, several of you might recognize is um, written into the grazing regulations is this idea of range readiness um, when a rancher may turn out cattle. So that's written down, that's in the regulations, but um, in real life, you know, that's a function of local discretion um, and determination, um, an individual making the call on what range readiness really looks like. And so we apply this notion of formal and informal institutions um, interacting, creating, setting um, kind of the climate for policy implementation to manage wildfire risk on BLM rangelands in Idaho. So we know that ecological challenges are different even within the state. And we also know that folks are doing a good job getting wildfire management activities um, on the ground. So there have been extensive fuel breaks um, put into place in Idaho and the tri-state area, but also things like prescribed burning, mastication, spraying invasive. Um, but some have critiqued that um, this full suite of tools hasn't effectively or synergistically um, worked together to influence fire behavior at the landscape scale. And so for that reason, this study was interested in how do these institutional factors uh, contribute to perceptions of barriers to implementing outcome-based approaches to manage wildfire risk on Idaho's rangelands. So if the outcome is improved wildfire risk management, what is holding the BLM and their partners back from actually getting it on the ground? Are the barriers more legal or cultural? And what's going on in the field areas that are actually getting this done? So this was an exploratory study, a social science study, um, and we're interested in perceptions among field offices, and then also between scales, so between permittees uh, and the BLM, and also other actors involved. Uh, so we did a comparative case study of three BLM field offices in Idaho, one in each BLM district. <laughs> uh, so that would be the, um, the Boise district there on the um, west side, in the middle is the Twin Falls district, and then on the east side uh, is the Idaho Falls district. Uh, data were collected in summer uh, through fall 2019, um, and participants were sought for their involvement in grazing administration or other fuels management activities in these field areas. Uh, and so we were interested in examples of tools, activities that were being implemented to deal with fire risk in these places. Um, and then, you know, asking the question, what, if anything, is preventing you from getting those um, actions on the ground? 
And so we uh, did qualitative analysis on these data we collected. Um, we were interested in which barriers that were identified by participants, were they derived from regulations, those formal things, policies, laws, and then which ones were more from practices or norms, so um, perhaps beliefs within the field office. And, um, so this was the, <laughs> the sampling uh, we did. I can spend more time on this later if anyone's interested. And so preliminary findings on this, this is a conceptual model of um, the relatively important components here. So dark red up top are those formal institutions, so obviously laws, policies, um, scientific knowledge. Uh, and then there at the bottom, um, in orange, we have the informal institutions, so norms, culture, and then also there's some interaction of the more interpretations of policies. So those are administrative rules, the IMs, and also politics. Uh, and then we found that resource condition is actually a big player as well. And so the way these work is they are interactive and also mutually reinforcing. And together they create perceptions of barriers to using outcome-based management to manage fire risk. And so there's interaction among these colored boxes, but also within them. So somewhat obviously resource condition informs policies and vice versa. And then history also informs experience. Uh, not surprisingly, politics, so belief about grazing, um, informs culture and norms uh, within an office or a field area. <clears throat> These are the specific components I'll focus on today. So like I said, resource condition became clear that it was important. Uh, as far as formalized policies and processes go, the grazing regulations, NEPA processes, uh, culture and norms, things like leadership, shared vision, beliefs about resource management, uh, resistance to change or experimentation, or perhaps an office is enthusiastic about experimenting. Uh, history, so things like lawsuits, fire events, and then the experience of the individuals, uh, so with allotments, with permittees, and then how long staff have actually been in that office is also important. So now I'm going to talk about the three offices um, to explore how these components manifested uh, and how participants viewed the efficacies of actually implementing outcome-based approaches to deal with wildfire risk in their field areas. So the field, first field office, field office A, uh, there was evidence of consistent leadership, shared vision, uh, really low staff turnover. So the, the newest rangeland management specialist um, had been there for eight years. They were also fairly well staffed. There were five range cons in this office. And permittees generally knew uh, who to contact and felt comfortable pitching ideas um, to this office. And so this long tenure, this staff familiarity with permittees, that translated to a lot of experience and then high capacity and learning. Uh, so this was one of the offices leading in permit renewals in the state. There are significant backlogs in these in a lot of other offices. Um, some of you are familiar with that. Um, and so this made permittees feel like there was more direct integration of their knowledge and preferences into um, their permits. And so as a result, there was sort of a culture of experimentation in this office. When I was there in 2019, there were no active lawsuits underway. And so one interviewee, one BLM interviewee, described that their office was flying under the radar. Uh, and the field manager also had an attitude of his words, not mine, um, bring it <laughs> in terms of lawsuits. And so what we found was other BLM interviewees in that office felt like um, that leadership's confidence in them uh, gave them the sense that they could try new things on the ground. 
And so and as an example, um, there's been some interest in using targeted grazing to deal with um, fuels, to reduce fuels and wildfire risk. And so in this office, um, they had decided that, so the grazing regulations authorize targeted grazing. It is legal, it's something you can do. Um, but they said, you know, why paint a target on it? So instead this office used a weeds EA in the field office and treated targeted grazing as just one of many tools to deal with fuels. So it's a, uh, again, it's a tool rather than, um, you know, a permittee getting to eat more grass. <laughs> So also in this office, uh, it was in fairly good resource condition. Um, so there's priority habitat area for sage grouse there. Um, but as a result, um, nearly all interviewees we talked to were concerned about the wildfire risk in that area because for at least the last 10 years, no fuels management activities had been undertaken. And the barrier to this was actually not from the BLM, from permittees, they were enthusiastic about treatments, but it was because um, the Department of Fish and Game was concerned about protecting sage-grouse habitat, and so the BLM didn't feel that they could get any environmental assessments through uh, without protest from uh, Fish and Game, and so no fuels treatments activities were undertaken. Um, so, of course, um, in 2018, there was a 100,000-acre fire in this field area. It affected 17 permittees. Um, so, as a result, the BLM and Fish and Game actually together convened a multi-stakeholder group uh, to get a new fuel break on the ground to prevent fires in the future, and then hopefully that will be a setting um, for future collaborative projects to deal with that fuels problem. The next office was quite different. Um, so there were a lot of annual grass monocultures in this field area, so cheatgrass and medusa head. And as a result, um, you, you get a condensed fire return interval to about two to five years in some places, and the shrub component is largely eliminated. And so we found there was low capacity to be proactive with fuels or grazing management in this office. Um, but the reason for this was quite complex. To begin with, um, it was understaffed, so there were only two range cons in this office when I was there in 2019, and then also really high turnovers. So the most seasoned rangeland management specialist um, had only been there for two years. And then you also had field managers for the last decade or so um, who were often details, so they wouldn't be there for too long. And so in this office, there was a loss of continuity in experience with the permittees, so those relationships, knowing who's, who's um, uh, good to work with, who's not, and then also familiarity with the issues um, on that allotment. Um, so, for example, if uh, cheatgrass is gradually invading an allotment, um, if you don't have a range con there to observe that over time, uh, the urgency of the issue is um, less urgent. <laughs> um, another example, uh, this is perhaps an extreme, but one permittee said that he hadn't had his permit renewed uh, since 1989 because it was complicated and that loss of knowledge each time uh, a range con left, it became this ordeal for someone to undertake. And so we also found that shared vision was lacking in this office. Um, the reason for this is that the BLM seems to be pulled um, in multiple directions by really urgent issues. So some interviewees referenced proximity to a major metropolitan area, um, and so greater diversity of demands on public uh, rangelands were taking place there. And a public that may not necessarily want to see cows out there, and they're a fairly litigious public. 
And so the BLM said most of their day-to-day -day work is actually dealing with rights-of-way, recreation, and access, rather than grazing and uh, fuels treatments. And so an example of kind of this conundrum. So um, for this, this is a permittee, and we had been talking about how the BLM, the national office, had expressed interest in being more flexible with grazing management. Um, and he kind of laughed in my face about it and said, all of us around here have asked for changes to our permits. It's a complete waste of time. They just say no. There's no give whatsoever. So why the BLM is interested in being flexible is beyond my imagination. In contrast, though, the BLM very much acknowledges the impression that they're giving permittees regarding dealing with permits and managing fire risk. So this was one BLM interview in this field office. And he said, we're kind of in the thick of it right now, trying to figure out what all we're supposed to be accomplishing as a field office. There's not been a large continuity of managers, particularly for about the last decade. I think that's led to a lot of the disconnect with permittees. And so we also found a misalignment uh, between BLM and permittees' beliefs about how resources should be managed, how fire risk should be dealt with. So for example, many permittees in this field area had said, um, you know, I'd asked them, you know, what, what would you like to be doing that you feel like you can't do right now? And a lot of them wanted to do dormant season grazing of the cheatgrass and medusa head on their allotments, so fall, winter, or early spring. Um, they believed this would either um, prevent it from invading, or deal with that thatch, cut it back before the next fire season. But the BLM just doesn't have the capacity to rewrite the existing permits so that they include dormant season grazing. So currently they're written for the normal um, growing season, and so they would have to redo an awful lot of permits to accommodate this. So that's a very real um, formal barrier, having to go through the grazing regs to do that. Permittees also um, wanted to be able to graze within the two years following wildfires. Um, the BLM invests millions, as we'll hear from Gwender, um, in rehabbing uh, burned allotments following fires. And, and the uh, participants explained, so the BLM um, said that grazing one would adversely impact the rehab uh, following a fire. And then also they're protecting an investment by closing down those allotments. And then also they're following a very formal uh, process regarding post-fire rehab for those areas. However, from a permittee perspective, um, they view they view this as the BLM allowing cheatgrass to invade uh, while that ground is bare, while the ground is black, um, and then further exacerbating wildfire risk. And so they're looking at the same piece of ground but reacting to it, their beliefs about the appropriate management activities are very different. The final office um, had some really long tenured uh, rangeland management specialists. One of them had been there for 20 years, and so that's a lot of knowledge about a really specific place that the office benefits from. Uh, it was also fairly well staffed. Um, it actually had seven range cons there, which is quite a large number. Um, but most notable about this office uh, was a long history and abundance of lawsuits, both uh, directed at the field office, but also the district. Um, office. And so as a result, uh, most BLM interviewees uh, expressed that that gave them a good sense of what would be um, 
legal, legally <laughs> tenable, what would get them sued and what wouldn't. And so one rangeland management specialist described to me wanting to try something new. He'd worked with a permittee and they thought, you know, maybe in years that are particularly productive, so last spring in Idaho in May and June were really wet, um, maybe they could write into the other terms and conditions on a permit, um, authorize some extra AUMs in those specific years to cut down on fuels. Uh, this RMS brought this idea to his field manager who said it's, it's a great idea, it makes a lot of sense for this place, but we don't think we could get away with it, we're gonna get sued. And so the BLM is cautious about experimenting. Uh, nearly all permittees describe the BLM having fear about lawsuits and doing things that will get a permit attention from the litigious public. And the BLM more took the view that they know what they can get away with, and they know that they, what they can't, and so they will find different avenues as needed. And so, for example, um, one BLM interview said, I think that our field office is pretty good at being able to tell, okay, this is probably gonna go to court, or this probably isn't. For me right now, where I have flexibility that a lot of, a lot of other offices don't, I'm kinda like, let's not mess with it. And so because of this history of lawsuits, there are um, just a lot more extensive NEPA processes required of this field office. And so as a result, there's a big backlog of things on their NEPA to-do list. And so it's small things like pipes, wells, new fences. And so permittees get the sense that um, you know, it'll take 10 years for them to get a change on their permit. Uh, as far as the field guys go in this office, they've had a lot of success treating cheatgrass and juniper. They've done this through a programmatic um, vegetation EA through the district um, to authorize these treatments. But one interviewee told me that they intentionally left out targeted grazing from this EA uh, because they felt that if they had grazing in there, it wouldn't get through um, the, the public review process. It, again, using the language of a different office, it paints a target on it. Uh, and so this office was intrigued by using targeted grazing to deal with fuels, but there seems to be a lack of knowledge about how to authorize it or get it on the ground. As far as comparing among cases, uh, so lawsuits, they seem to either embolden or caution. This is a function of leadership, staff tenure, experience. And then we saw different um, degrees of inclination to experiment. So in the first office, they had high capacity, supportive leadership and culture. The second one uh, had low capacity, but that was the one where it was a function of being understaffed and having all those other demands on them in that office. And they perceived experimentation to be risky. In the third office, they were kind of a mix. They had high capacity, supportive leadership, but they also perceived um, experimentation to be risky. And so it's important to kind of pull apart the nuance between offices B and C. Both of them were less inclined to experiment, but the reasons were very different. In field office B, the lack of experimentation was linked to the BLM and the public's beliefs about resource use. Whereas field office C, the permittees viewed the lack of risk taking as not the fault of the BLM, the BLM very much wants to, but actually it's because of the presence of these constant lawsuits. In offices with high capacity, so A and C, um, there was presence of shared vision, experience, um, and they were helpful for overcoming barriers presented by formalized processes. And so namely NEPA here. Uh, and so in the case of A, uh, those were the ones where they were just confident they would prevail. Uh, that was the office that said bring it <laughs> in terms of lawsuits. And then C, uh, they were very strategic where they knew what would cause them problems um, and they would just sidestep it and find a different way to get things done. 
Uh, in the cases of um, misaligned beliefs about resource management and poor resource condition, so B, and even the case of A, where um, the sage-grouse habitat hadn't been treated, um, there was a high fire risk, um, it led to more perceived barriers from formalized processes. And this is still preliminary analysis, but we, we're getting the sense that these offices in those situations are shifting back toward traditional command and control uh, models. So no risk taking, um, just hold our ground until you know we find a better way to do this. And so in summary, um, these institutions create context, they're interactive, um, they reinforce each other. It's difficult to tease them apart, um, but some elements uh, make an office more inclined to experiment. And it also changes how an office perceives barriers to using outcome-based approaches to manage fire risk. As far as implications go, um, you know, we're interested in can some formal barriers be sort of softened um, by these informal components? So things like shared experience, um, long-tenured staff, good, good relationships with permittees. Beliefs about resource management was important. Uh, so we noticed that fuels treatments were getting on the ground uh, if you go through kind of fuels, weeds, um, vegetation authorities rather than grazing. Um, and then ideas about is grazing appropriate to reduce wildfire risk? And so we're thinking about those allotments following big wildfires that are closed for two years. And then improved BLM capacity, uh, that might give folks more space to experiment in those gray areas that that first office referred to. And so for example, perhaps expanding what qualifies as a categorical exclusion or expanding the use of a programmatic EA could improve workloads of BLM staff, which would then improve staff capacity and then give them more space to experiment. Um, and then adaptive approaches using learning and knowledge sharing, we all know will help with this. Um, thanks for your time. We have time for questions. We have a couple minutes for questions. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.